Good evening, everyone, and welcome back after a very long week and a half away. I'm very happy to see you again. Um, as you, I'm sure you can already tell, Patrick is not here tonight because he has to go get his cat, which is much more important than us, and I would agree. But I'm very excited to say that we have here tonight my good friend, Brock Blessman. Brock, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Brock Blessman, uh, James's friend, and as of like five minutes ago in his wedding party, so that's kind of exciting. But yeah, uh, I don't. What, what else do you want? Just I guess my, I'm semi qualified to talk on history today because I teach seventh grade history, but that's about it. That is that is the most important history shaping young hearts and minds. <laughs> Absolutely, is is very important. Well, no, and uh, yeah. So thanks for coming on today. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, before we hop into it, I want to say to everyone, um, give it, go ahead and give us a like on Facebook, um, YouTube, and give us a follow, give us a subscribe, all that good stuff that is mandatory, and uh, <laughs> or so I'm told. So let's get into it. All right, so tonight we're going to be talking about history. The title of the podcast is History is Weird. That is because we were talking about two things tonight. Disagreements in history and weird moments in history that basically shaped the entire world and continue to affect us today. So the first thing that we're going to talk about tonight is two different, two different wars. I guess technically four because um, <laughs> mine is three. I'm cheating. Um, That's fair. <laughs> two different series of wars, I guess, that have very different perspectives based on whether or not you win or lose. So, Brock, you're familiar with the adage, um, history is written by the victor, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, and uh, that's actually, you know, mostly true, I would say. But in, uh, fortunately, we still have <clears throat> records from the losers, and that allows us to see where the winners and the losers kind of differ on all these events beyond just the saltiness of losing. Who's the third person in here? Who is that? That is Mike Redmond. Are we, <laughs> we are being invaded. Sorry. We are being invaded mid podcast by Sorry Mike Redmond. <laughs> Oops. Do you want to talk um, history? <laughs> just accidentally clicked on the, the discord. I have no clue what you guys are talking about. We're talking about history. <laughs> History. History. Yeah, you know much about history, Mike? Oh, I know all of the things about history that nobody cares about. <laughs> That's not true. Everything about history is important. Yeah, right. You're right. <laughs> Except for my history. So anyway, <laughs> um, the two topics we're going to talk about in this segment are um, the American Civil War and the Punic Wars between Rome and ancient Carthage. So, Brock, uh, why don't you start off? Tell us, you know, for everyone in the in the chat who's not American, tell us a little bit about the Civil War and how the North and the South disagree on uh, some of, you know, have different perspectives on on the war. For sure, historically. for sure. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hop off because I cannot contribute to this conversation. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm bye, sorry Mike. about that. That made this made the the podcast a little interesting though. Oops. <laughs> See ya. See ya. See ya, Mike. All right. That was interesting. So that was interesting. I, I can't be surprised with Mike. We though. have we have to lock the Discord down in the future. Yeah, but no so civil war. So where do you want me to start? Like what got the tensions rising, or like what how we even got into the war in the first place? Just so start yeah, off, just what's just, the perspective? So just give us a quick brief overview of the war, and then um, okay. How so, and then we'll get into how the North viewed it after the war was done, how the South viewed it, and how that kind of you know the winner loser yeah, dichotomy yeah. affects how we see it today. Yep, because there's a lot of big arguments about the Civil War. There's some people that are going to tell you it's all about slavery, and there's some that's going to tell you all about the secession issue and reuniting the states. And I, I think it's both. I think slavery is definitely the root of the secession issue. But secession played a bigger role into how we actually got into the war in the first place. Because 
yeah, slavery, big problem at the time. You see a lot more activism, a lot more civil rights movements trying to spread awareness in the North about slavery because a lot of people don't realize it's not like today. You're not traveling down South for vacations. A lot of people up North, they know slavery obviously is in the South. They have slavery in the North as well. But slavery in the North is very different from slavery in the South. So as they start becoming aware of how bad slavery really is in the South, uh, you get more activism for the war. But that's not necessarily the initial reason why we entered the war. I'm, Abraham Lincoln is pissed off because of secession. You have, you start with South Carolina leaving, which after they already threatened to leave years before over taxes, with Andrew Jackson. Now I'm not. It's not surprising they're the first to leave over um, talks of slavery being taken away. But they secede, and it's also a big issue too with because of taxes, and they think there's unfair um, differences in the economy in the North and the South because up north, the North kind of had not a monopoly, but they had a good control over what prices they could pay on cotton from the south and with the cotton gin those kept getting lower and lower and the south is getting pretty impatient with north and they're like haggling of prices so there's a lot of tensions rising between i'd say economic factors and slavery factors so i'd say slavery is the reason why the south is seceding for the most part Mm-hmm. But the reason we entered war was not because, in my opinion, it was not because Abraham Lincoln was trying to end slavery at first. He was against slavery, but he had more of that free state type of mind where he was more content on making sure new states didn't get slavery, not necessarily taking away slavery in that point of time. So yet. defeating he, Lincoln wanted to defeat it long term rather than you know phase it out rather than yes, yeah, yep, absolutely. Because I think a lot of people then saw it more of oh yes, slavery is terrible. We need to get rid of it. But they also saw like, we can't just overnight get rid of it in the South. That's going to cause chaos. Well, that's what they did anyways throughout the Civil War, after the Civil War was over. But I don't know. When Lincoln gets inaugurated, his inaugural speech, he never mentions slavery. He doesn't mention, he doesn't condemn the South. He wants to in some of his rough drafts mm-hmm. that he never actually gave. Uh, I think he believes shall it be the sword or shall it be peace? Okay, but then that's, after, like, that's edgy. It is edgy, literally sword, but he's thought, okay, I shouldn't do that. And he gives, I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's a long thing about how the North and the South should be a union, how we're good allies. And while like angers and tensions have risen, that we should rise above that and reunite. And then the South's like, now we're attacking Fort Sumter. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I would say that what gets us into the war, the North initially mostly is because of the the secession. And why are they seceding, though? Because of slavery. So I think you can argue both points. People like to argue, oh, it's because of slavery. Oh, it's because of the states leaving. Well, the states had to leave for a reason, and most of that's because of the North wanting to get rid of slavery or not allowing future slave states. Which that kind of goes in line with what, you know, the founding fathers and whatnot, you know, phasing slavery out so that they don't completely destroy the uh, economy of the South at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so tell us just brief overview how the war went. And then yeah. we'll get into the, uh, the aftermath. For sure. So, yeah, the North sucked at first. Like, the North was terrible. Like, the North had 22 million people total. I mean, you got to take into consideration that's women, children, elderly, people that aren't going to fight in the war. But you have 22 million in the North, and you have 9 million in the South. So, clear number advantage, especially when you consider that 4 million of that South population is enslaved. So, really, you've got 5 million versus 22 million. I didn't realize the population difference was that yeah intense yep it, it was bad because you gotta think about it, there's not big cities in the south so when people immigrate to the u.s they're mostly immigrating to the north that's where the cities are that's where the factory jobs are people aren't moving to the south like the north the north with that industrialization and all that economic boom up there that's where people are headed towards Makes but sense. and so really people thought it was gonna be a short war solely for the reason that we had that i don't know we had that population in the north and like even at the first at some of the first major battles like i remember at the first battle of bull run like hundreds of families brought their families and picnics to come watch this battle not thinking this is like oh okay let's just like eat our sandwiches and drink our lemonade while we watch these guys like march i don't know what the mindset really behind that was but nobody thought this was going to be as gruesome as it was and partially that's due to the muskets and mini balls making it way more i don't know deadly than it used to be but yeah families ran in terror as they saw how tragic these were but I can't. I can't all, imagine that, just thinking. Okay, it's a Sunday. I'm bored. Let's go watch the Civil War real quick. Absolutely. I, I don't get the thought behind that either. But I. I don't know. I don't think that nobody kind of knew what we were getting into. I think people thought this was going to last a few months. South would surrender because of the population difference. But this got dragged out into a five plus year. I don't know. War. 
And a lot of that's because of, I'd say the North had more of that endurance-based fighting where that South had that quick dash in and they were like aggressive at the start. And that overwhelmed the North because the North had, I don't know, the North had bodies to throw at battles. So even the North could caught, could afford losing 20 plus battles because they had the bodies to throw it at, whereas the South couldn't do that. And the North generals looked like clowns for the start of the war. Well, you see that a lot in the South strategy, strategy, don't you? Where they were thinking, okay, we have to march on Washington and end the war now. We can't. Absolutely. Yep. The, 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 the plans on both sides were very different. And the North is more of a long term. The North wanted to, it's called the Anaconda plan. They wanted to choke out the South. And they literally had ships blockading their seaports. They had uh, the next goal was to take over the Mississippi, which they got almost all of, except for a small port in Vicksburg, which they get later, and that's a whole other long story. Yeah. But their whole thing was to strangle and surround their prey, like an anaconda. That's why it gets the name it has. But it's it's much more of a long term plan. Whereas the South was all right. We need to break the blockade. We need to break the Union forces, and then we need to get Mar- we need to get to D.C. We need to get a border state such as Maryland. They need allies. They wanted European allies. Granted, they didn't get any. Um, so really, their phase they had three phases: break the blockade. They couldn't really do it. They were able to slow it down in the Mississippi, but still not substantial. Two, get allies. They really couldn't. They had some border states give them some support, but that was about it. And three, get to D.C. And that one they had a little bit better success in getting towards, but still no. Well, okay, so I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that England Mm -hmm. was actually prepared to support the South until they heard about the defeat at Gettysburg. Yeah, um, that a big one, too. I'd say after Battle of Antietam, that really deterred them as well. With the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation that Lincoln wrote up, he planned on really, he had that written up way before the Battle of Antietam, but he didn't want to release it till after a big victory to kind of show that, hey, we have the moral high ground, we're winning this war, and we're trying to help free these slaves. So like I said, like initially the goal wasn't to end slavery, but then when ending slavery became a military tactic, it was, it was much more easier to do when they knew that they could lessen the numbers of the South, demoralize the South in that aspect, so gain support from other countries. Because or if other countries... It takes slavery out of it. Other countries could have potentially joined in the South for the economic purposes. Mm-hmm. But at that time, you got to realize a lot of countries are also anti-slavery, and therefore they're not going to join the South. They're not going to back up a country that is already against – or when they're already against slavery themselves. So I don't know. I think it, it was a smart move, but that's why I say was slavery a main cause of the war? Absolutely. But was it the only cause? No. That secession – it was used as a military tactic by the North. So the North can claim the moral high ground at first. But it wasn't about that for them at the start of the war. Well, and that's the most important thing when it comes to war, though, is, clean, is having a Cassius belly. Yep. So, Absolutely. Okay, so end of the war. Now, so we're in the Reconstruction era. How does the North yeah. view the war versus how the South views the war? And for sure. And which viewpoint, obviously we all know the answer to this, but which viewpoint is the dominant one today? And, yeah. you know. For sure. Uh, definitely that... The viewpoint today is the North are the heroes because they ended slavery, and rightfully so in that aspect. Anybody who ends slavery should be seen as the hero for that. Uh, the difference is, though, is some of the methods used to get that, definitely questionable. And I, I think you'll see people be like, ah, oh, it was to end slavery. That's a fiber. But I, I, that's not the entire goal of the North. The North wasn't completely there to end slavery. They can claim that because they, they, that's what they successfully did. They did end slavery. But they also had a lot of intentions in mind when attacking the South. Mm-hmm. And like, if you look at the end of the war, there it was. The point was they wanted this war to end, and so the demoralizing tactics used, which they make sense absolutely. They surround different cities at times in battles, and they lay siege or they starve them out. The amount of like gross stories about what people had to do to survive and eat in the South, and like this is civilians now getting affected too because like South and Southern generals wouldn't surrender, Northern generals cut them off. But at the end of the day, it's a good tactic; it worked. But and then and also the Germans march to the sea. Yep, Sherman's March to the Sea, where just burning and looting villages as you go. Almost like, not like Viking-esque, but I don't know. It's <laughs> burning villages, raiding villages, attacking them, just demoralizing the South. That was the whole point behind it. So when you paint that picture, instead of the heroes that ended slavery, it definitely gets a little more hazy. I would still pick the North over the South any day because of that. Well, yeah. But, but with the South, though, the one thing you have to look at, too, the one, like, semi-redeeming thing for the South is that not everybody there is fighting because of slavery. 
Yeah, a lot of them are. You, you can look at any war. Not all people that fought in the German army were supporting Nazism. It's because if they didn't join the army, they were going to be killed or executed or thrown in prison. So mm-hmm. it, some of them were there because they had no other choice. And that's how some of the South was. The South didn't have that population to fight. And who, who do you think is going to be fighting those wars? The rich plantation owners or the, the, the casual lower income farmers who saw it more as a job opportunity? It was posted as, oh, defend our independence in the South. It was more of a rally for those people to the Confederate States of America, not a let's preserve slavery. Because a lot of those people down South, the people fighting the war, they didn't care. They were just they were the pawns for the, uh, the uh, upper class Southerners, the plantation owners there. So definitely a lot of the South gets villainized and they absolutely should be for supporting slavery. Uh, but some people get a worse rep than they or a worse rep than they should have because they got drafted and some that got drafted into the war. They weren't there, all of them fighting for slavery. You, you read some of the testimonies and you're not, you read some of the like primary sources from Confederate troops. And you see that a lot of them there do not care about slavery whatsoever and that they don't want to be a part of this war, but they kind of get sucked into it because they get drafted. And if you don't have the three hundred, uh, if you don't have the three hundred dollars to get out of it, you're stuck fighting it. Yeah. So, the South for the longest time called it the War of Northern Aggression. They built all these monuments, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, kind of herald the fact that they were their own country for four plus years. Um, whereas the North just kind of, you know, as you said, took moral high ground. And if you look in textbooks. From our childhood all the way to today, it talks about how mm-hmm. the North is the good guys, South is the bad guys. Um, yeah. Obviously, I don't. I've never lived in the South. I've heard stories of how it's taught differently in the South. So Interesting. Okay. I'm not sure. What What is your opinion on how how the different viewpoints have shaped and yeah. changed through to today? Because obviously, in the yeah. last couple of years, we've seen the destruction of these monuments and whatnot, and mm-hmm. kind of the return to the moral superiority of the North. Um, I think, yeah. So what do you, what do you think? I, I think you're going to see both sides of it. And I don't think you're going to see either side understanding either side as, as everything today. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. I like to play devil's advocate a lot. And so like, don't take that for me supporting one side or another. And in this case though, I will say like, for me, I think the North is majorly in the right. I think it they overgeneralize the South and the fact that they're all these racist people fighting for slavery in this war, when at the end of the day, that wasn't the case. Most of them, yeah. A, a big majority of like the plantationers, yeah, a lot of racist people in the South during the war, absolutely. Uh, but was a lot of it also the patriotism of their new country and trying to be an economic stronghold in the South that wanted to focus more on um, agriculture over industry. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a big portion of it too, but I don't know. I, I can understand how, if that, if it's taught differently in the South, many of them might see it more as a patriotic nationalist type thing where no, we're supporting the fact that we were, we were agrarian or agrarian, sorry. And we were focused on agriculture. Yeah. Agrarian geez, but, uh, focused on agriculture and that we wanted to build up our country that way in those roots and past policies that focused on that and the poor, like the poorer farmers and helping them out over big business, big industry in the North. Cause a lot of people saw the North as corrupt for those big factories and big businesses, which mm-hmm. I don't know, probably there was a lot of corruption. You look at DC and almost every cabinet member was caught in some type of, I don't know, money scandal. Wow, it's almost like nothing's changed over the last two years. Yeah, absolutely. History repeats itself. Uh, history does not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. I don't know who said That's that. That's fair. So I like that. <laughs> it is a quote from someone. I'm sorry if I can't, I can't attribute the quote to anybody. But speaking <laughs> of, so I want to jump back to the Punic Wars now. Go for it. Yeah, yep. So the Punic Wars took place. There, there were three of them. Um, the first one was from 264 to 241 BC, where mm-hmm. uh, it was fought between Rome, which obviously we all know what Rome is. I hope you do. If not, <laughs> go get a history degree. Um, and Carthage. So Carthage was a city-state in uh, northern Tunisia. It's actually the capital city of Tunis is built on the location of Carthage. Um, so that's exactly where it is. And they were Phoenicians who um, controlled trade in the Western Mediterranean and had colonies in Sicily, 
throughout all of North Africa, Sardinia, Corsica, which are those two other islands right next to Italy, and all the way up through parts of Spain. And um, they came into conflict with Rome uh, because a bunch of mercenaries had taken over a city in Sicily. And um, the king of Syracuse attacked them, and the, the mercenaries asked both Carthage and Rome for support. Um, Carthage got there first because they already had colonies on the island. They helped them out, and then Rome went, well, we don't like that, and they attacked Carthage. <laughs> Is literally what happened. Rome went, Rome had, they had uh, gathered an army in southern Italy, were preparing to cross into Sicily when they found out that um, the Carthaginians had already done the work. And um, keep in mind, by the way, that Carthage and Rome had been allied in a war against um, the Greek king Pyrrhus, like, 30 years earlier so they were on decent terms at the time but Car- but rome just went yeah no and then because they didn't want carthage to control all of sicily so mm. they they moved their army over to sicily got their butts kicked um a bunch in early on in the war because they had never had a navy before and carthage had the best navy in yep. the western mediterranean so but eventually the romans cop uh found a beached um carthaginian ship copied it and what they did so then they copied it built a fleet lost again what the hell why are they losing (laughs) so then they realized right we suck at sailing here's what we do but you know what they're but they were winning pretty much every single battle on land in sicily so they went okay well here's what we're gonna do we're gonna create a giant drawbridge with a spike in it and instead of trying to ram the enemy ship we're going to pull up alongside it, drop the drawbridge to lock it yep. in place, and turn it into a <laughs> land battle. And then they won every battle uh. after that. So the Romans were very good at adapting. That's how they, they won their first war. Um, they were really harsh with their... Uh... We actually see this again. So um, the, in the First and Second Punic Wars, when Rome wins, they enact extremely harsh penalties that pushes Carthage to go to war again, which... Mm-hmm. Speaking of history repeating itself, or at least rhyming, the Treaty, rhyming, of, yeah. <laughs> Treaty of Versailles leading to um, World War II. Uh, so they, they win the First War. They force the Carthaginians to pay 81 tons of silver over 10 years, 31 tons right now. And then just four years after the end of the war, Carthage was trying to... Oh, and they took the entire island of Sicily, with the exception of the Kingdom of Syracuse. Um. And then four years after the war, Carthage was trying to put down rebels in Sardinia and Corsica. And Rome went, oh, yeah, no, this wasn't in the treaty. Uh, was, this was actually part of the treaty. These islands are ours now. And um, Carthage couldn't do anything about it because Rome was too powerful. Uh, because they had all the money at the time. Carthage was sending all their money to Rome. So fast forward uh, about 22 years to 218 BC, and we look at the Second Punic War. The Second Punic War, have you ever heard of Hannibal Barca? No, I haven't. So he's one of the most famous generals of all time, and the only (laughs) general... um, So Rome was truly in danger of being sacked um, only one time between about... It was 400-something BC when the Gauls sacked it, and 400-something AD when the... uh, Ostrogoth sacked it. In between there, there was, Rome was only threatened one time, and it was by Hannibal. Hmm. And other Roman generals, but that doesn't count. They have a lot of civil wars. <laughs> uh, like it's, it's like their Olympics. So Hannibal was actually the son of the general who surrendered to the Romans. And so grew up with a hatred for Rome. Carthage, in between the First and Second Punic War, since they lost all their islands, they started to colonize up through Spain. So they had rebuilt their power, and this time Carthage initiated the war because of Hannibal's sore feelings about the end of the First War, i.e. Treaty of Versailles. So, um, hang on, I want to check something real quick. No, go for it. Okay, cool. We're having stream issues, but it's fine. We're recording. Um, <laughs> where was I? Right. So he sacked Saguntum, which was an allied city, in uh, Roman allied city in Spain. 
marched across the Alps in winter with 40,000 troops and 37 elephants. Came out the other side. All the elephants had made it. All of them were sick, but they all made it. And he only lost a few (laughs) thousand troops. Um, And proceeded to just completely destroy every Roman army sent against him for the next few years. And eventually he was defeated when Rome went, okay, fine, we're not going to fight you then. And then sent their armies off to attack Spain and eventually Africa. And then after that, after that war was done, um, this treaty was even more harsh. So this time around, they had to pay um, 10,000 talents of silver, which is like 260 tons of silver. Jeez. Yeah. They had to give uh, Rome all of their overseas, overseas territories, and some territories in North Africa had to be given to mm-hmm. um, one of Carthage's allies who betrayed them in the war. They were only allowed to have 10 ships, and they were not allowed to make war without Rome's permission, which leads to the Third Punic War in 149. So Rome had started to build, or Carthage had began to rebuild their economy, and... Um, Rome was very salty about that. Uh, Cato the Censor, who's one of the most famous orators of all time. Yeah, yep. Uh, ended every single speech in the Roman Senate with Carthage must be destroyed. Didn't matter the topic. <laughs> Carthage must be destroyed. So, but also at the same time, the Numidians were, which is uh, another kingdom in North Africa at the time, mm-hmm. were attacking Carthage. And Carthage couldn't do anything about it because if they raised an army to defend themselves... Rome would attack them. So they, they asked Rome multiple times, hey, can we fight back? And Rome was allied to Numidia, so they obviously said no. And then finally Carthage was like, you know what? Screw it. We're not just going to let our people get killed. And they raised an army to fight the Numidians, at which point Rome promptly laid siege to the city for three years and destroyed it. Uh. So they managed, they, they, they broke into the city, completely leveled it. There were a quarter million people in the city not including mercenaries, because Carthaginians, uh, Carthage mostly fought with mercenaries because um, they were a mercantile city-state. So, not including mercenaries, there were 250,000 people in the city before the siege began. At the end of the siege, two, over 200,000 were dead. The remaining 50,000 were sold into slavery. They burned the Jeez. city to the ground. They brought in slaves to level the city completely, and then they salted the earth so that nothing could grow there. So, needless to say, Rome was a little salty about Carthage exi- <laughs> Carthage's existence. But what yeah, we, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No rising from no, no that was just quick. No rising from the ashes on that one. That's, no, that's the, uh, there's, that's there's the nail on the coffin. That's there's the, no Phoenix yeah. story for Carthage here. Roll credits, yep. But uh, so, what we see here is so most of our records of the Punic Wars are Roman because yeah. Rome destroyed uh, everything in Carthage. They did. They, they, <laughs> we do have some Carthaginian accounts. Um, and more mm-hmm. importantly, we have accounts of the Punic Wars from non-Carthaginians that were anti-Roman. So Macedon mm-hmm. fought with Carthage, um, kind of, sort of, um, in the Second Punic War and wrote about Hannibal. So... But what we see is, up until very recently, when we've been able to study and reco- recover and study some of these um, writings, Rome has always been shown as the good guy. Um, Carthage, they're barbarians in North Africa who were trying to threaten the Republic. And what we can, what we've, what we can see now is that wasn't necessarily true. Um, in fact, only in one case was Carthage the aggressor, and they were the aggressors because they were pissed off that the f- treaty that, to end their first war was so harsh. So, what, what do you, what do you, tell me your general thoughts on this before I go yeah. any further. Not surprised at all. Like, I don't know. You can debate or argue or convince anything if, if as long as you have, I don't know, intelligence. Like, and I, I don't know. Any side is, I don't know. It's very easy to villainize. I feel like anybody. It doesn't take much. 
granted it's a lot easier i think with the north and the south and the civil war it's easy to say hey look they have slaves they're the bad guys and everybody can rely on that and rightfully so that's clearly who should lose the situation but this one gets a little bit more messy gets a little bit more complicated with uh I don't know. I don't think it's as clear cut as who's in the wrong at the start. But then it gets real clear by the time you see all three of those wars play out and see just the pure aggression from Rome towards, I don't know, deep-rooted hatred that's not necessarily warranted after the first war. Right, right. And so Rome and Carthage actually have a very interesting history. So I mentioned how they were allied against um, the Greek king Pyrrhus uh, just mm-hmm. like a few decades before the First Punic War. But even further back. So the founding story of Rome actually has Aeneas, who is a Trojan, escapes the city while the Greeks are burning Troy and hmm. kind of, you know, takes the remaining Trojans, floats yeah. all around the or uh, floats all around the Mediterranean trying to find a place for them to live. And for a while they stayed in Carthage with Queen Dido, Dido? I don't know how to pronounce I'm it. I'm not sure. Yeah, Dido. Mm. Um and very nearly actually stayed and became Carthaginians until Aeneas got a, received a message from the gods um, and <laughs> decided to move on, at which point the queen of Carthage killed herself. And, that, and uh, it was prophesied there that Rome would be the destruction of Carthage. According to stories well, written right. by Romans hundreds of years <laughs> later, it, yeah, it yep. was said that was that Rome would eventually destroy Carthage, and it ended conveniently up conveniently said. So it's another, easy to write prophecies after they've come into fruition. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, the gift of hindsight. <laughs> yep. So something I didn't know until I was making sure that I had some of my numbers right for this explanation was: yeah. Do you think so? Rome completely destroyed Carthage, leveled the city. So that means there was no peace treaty between Rome and Carthage because mm-hmm. there was no one left alive to sign a peace treaty. No one left, yeah. <laughs> so, but there is a peace there there is a peace treaty that ended the Third Punic War. Do you know when it was signed? No. 1985. That's ridiculous. <laughs> the mayor of Carthage and the mayor of Rome came together and signed a peace treaty to end the Punic War, Third, Third Punic War. I mean, that's pretty cool, but that's crazy. That's a good fun fact to have. Yeah, that that's hilarious. I could not believe that that was, you know. That's awesome. 2,100 years later, you're thinking, hmm, we should probably finally yep. end this war. I love when things that are so huge and big back then still just get brought up to the, I love that. Like, oh. I know. And it, you, it, it, it makes it feel like history is real because a lot of times we we read about history, we learn about it. And it feels like any other piece of fiction because mm-hmm. there's no sense of time and Absolutely. it's so far off that we can't imagine what things were like for second century BC Rome compared to today. But mm-hmm. yeah, events like that make you realize that that this was real and it affects how we are today. Absolutely. That's why I love history. I, I always feel like history gets such a bad rep, especially in schools. You're like, oh, it's just the social studies teacher. And I get it. There's that stereotypical social studies that's there to coach and stuff. But, like, I, I really try to make sure, like, my students know, like, hey, there is a reason why you're learning this. This isn't just to tell you boring, like, stories. This is so, like, I don't know. There are so many life lessons that you can learn. And like you said, while history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, it definitely does rhyme. And you can find those patterns. And uh, I don't know. I, I think you can be a lot more wiser for uh, or a lot wiser for that. I don't know. I, yeah, I think I think that you learn you can learn so much from from history that it can still be applied to today. I mean, you hear that this a lot from like West Point, for example, where they teach military tactics. Yeah, yep. Um, but not so much in every other aspect of history. And sure. uh, I don't know. I, I love sitting and reading reading the classics and learning about it. I have uh, been Absolutely. informed, by the way, the chat thinks that you have deep, dark, chocolatey tones. Uh, is this Patrick, I'm guessing? or yeah, it's, is, it's, yeah, it's, it's Patrick. It's, it's Patrick. Patrick. Nice. All right. Awesome. Well, he <laughs> cannot be here with us on camera. He is here with us in our hearts and in our chat. So that's actually a good, <laughs> good not, the, not the Patrick thing, but history yeah, mattering today that, is a good, good segment segue. into, yeah, segue into 
our next topic, which is weird events in history that affect the world today. So I'm talking, okay, this one really dumb insignificant thing happened that resulted in a, a series of events that completely shaped the world as it is today. So let's take turns on this one. What do you got, bro? Sweet, I got plenty. All right. So some of these I just thought are just random things that just shouldn't have happened in history at all. They don't really have as much relevance to today, but I thought they should be taught. And I guess they do have relevance. I just don't know the relevance to today. And that's the first one, mainly the first one. Uh, so have you heard of the 80-year war between Dutch and Spain? I have not. Okay, so this is going back to like Martin Luther's like 95 theses arguing about like Catholicism and Protestantism, just looking at that. And the Spain, uh, I don't know, Spain was not happy with the Dutch. The Spain were like, the Dutch all need to convert. They all need to join our religion. Martin Luther has inspired us to annoy the hell out of the Dutch for 80 years. And it gets to the point where Spain goes to invade, I don't know, they go to invade the Dutch. And the Dutch have this brilliant idea, and by brilliant, I mean one of the worst ideas you could possibly imagine. They decide to flood a third of their country. To stop the invasion. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't even stop it. They just decide, hey, let's blow up these dams. Let's flood roughly a third of our country. That's, ho that's yep. hilarious and they, in a very sad way. Yeah. So and what, they win because of it. Oh, they, they won because of it? Yes, and not first. It doesn't slow down. It slows down the Spanish invasion, but not in the way you'd think. Okay. So, you know, it, it you get winter. It freezes over all this new ice and stuff, and so the Spanish are taking their ships in as far as they can get, but they can't take them far into like any of these like dammed off areas now that are flooded. They, they don't know how deep they're gonna go and stuff like that. So they start getting out on the ice and traversing the ice, and the Dutch have these lovely things called ice skates, <laughs> and so. No joke. The Dutch single-handedly defeat the Spanish all because of ice skates. They would skate in, and there's testimonies. There's, like, these primary sources from the Spanish talking. It's all these accounts of seeing that the Dutch can move so quickly on the ice. They'd never seen it before. And, like, they would dash in out of nowhere, shoot their muskets, and they would disappear out of nowhere. So they would really – they would, like, guerrilla warfare tactics them with – ice skates and muskets and they would skate up quick do a drive-by hit and run on their ice skates and then they would skate on off and reload and come back later that's hilarious as the spanish just waddle like that is hysterical so obviously uh plays a big role in dutch history and i'm sure th they're uh kept a little bit more of their culture than if spain would have like taken over there and forced their religion into their uh I don't know, into their country. So oh, definitely yeah. affects them. Big lasting effects for them. I don't know exactly what those are since I don't know a lot about the Dutch, but yeah, definitely yeah. So uh, the takeaway from story. this, the takeaway from this <laughs> is if you want to defeat Spain, all you need is ice skates. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> France, write that down. Cause I think Spain's been looking a little, uh, little lustily after France recently. Also, I'm being informed by the chat that Lord of the Rings is real. According to, Patrick, of course. Yep. Tolkien, yeah, Tolkien wrote wrote about it after World War One, right? I think. Um, I have no idea. Do you not have you not watched Lord of the Rings? I have. I don't know by I don't know when they were released though. Oh, okay, okay. I haven't seen the second. Or when the book was even started being written, yeah. And now the chat is literally just everyone shouting Lord of the Rings stuff. This is going <laughs> well. We're on topic. Okay. Nice. So I have a couple of them. So oh, yeah, I got a few more for you too. You go for it though. So did you ever wonder to yourself why Spain had specific colonies in the West and Portugal did not? Yep. And I, I know a little bit about this. Okay. You, okay. You... <laughs> so Spain and Portugal are right next to each other. This is after the, you know, during and after the Reconquista. They, uh, you'd think they go to war because, you know, obviously control the peninsula and both of them are very trade, you know, they're very mercantilist states and they have, um, a lot of focus on exploration, both to the new world and to Asia. So you'd think they'd constantly butting heads, constantly be at war, trying to take each other's colonies, prevent each other from expanding, et cetera, et cetera. Why don't they? The reason is because the Pope arbitrarily drew a line in the Atlantic 
and split the world in half between Spain and Portugal. Yep. So it's called uh, here. I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna throw. I have actually have images of this that Go I'm it, going yeah. to throw up onto the screen. Right here. Whoops. I just transitioned back to ourselves. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> so this dotted, I know that Brock, you can't see it, but it's an image. That's of, okay. yep. It's an image of the earth with a dotted purple line where the Pope, Pope Alexander the sixth, who, uh, Rodrigo Borgia, hilarious Pope, laughably corrupt. One of my favorite popes of all time to learn about. <laughs> Um, take that, Patrick. And it's a dotted purple line that shows where he drew his line. And there was a treaty uh, the next year between um, Portugal and Spain ratifying it, but moving the line a little bit over. And then there's a green line for the Treaty of Zaragoza um, 30 years, 35 years later. So what we see here is the entirety of North America most of South America, with the exception of Brazil, is completely gifted to Spain by the Pope. Whereas Brazil and then all of um, Africa, Asia, and most of Oceania is gifted to Portugal. So this one, arbit one single arbitrary event led to the Spanish colonizing all of South and North America with the ex uh, until England and France got involved, mm -hmm. with the exception of Portugal, and Portugal setting up trade, trade ports and colonies all throughout Africa, India, uh, China, and even Japan. Uh, the Portuguese were allowed to, one of the few um, outsiders that were allowed to trade in Japan during the Sengokuji Dai period. And that influence with the Spanish obviously looking to conquer territory, whereas the Portuguese are looking to have exclusive trade right, uh, rights, um, actually slowed down the rate at which the East could have been colonized um, and introduced, introduced the West to the East through a, a trade route that didn't include China and the Arabian empires at the time. So if you're ever wondering why every single country in Central and South America speaks Spanish except for one, that's, that's why. why. Yep. <laughs> that is why. And so this one arbitrary event actually led to, first off, it prevented a massive war between Spain and Portugal that would have been globe-spanning, spanning, but it also resulted in Portuguese dom complete Portuguese dominance throughout all of Africa and Asia until the Dutch East India Company came in and started murking all the por all the Portuguese. Ah, the Dutch East India Company. The most <laughs> valuable and violent <laughs> company in the history of Earth, and they have some competition for that in Amazon. <laughs> Not to throw oh. any shade, but yes. Yep. So I don't know. What, what do you what do you what do you think about this? If you were Pope, would you have made that same world altering decision? I don't, you can't throw that at me. I don't know. I I don't know. If the goal was to stop a war, at least you stopped the war. But I don't know. That's I don't. It's crazy to think about how just small decisions by one person literally shaped so much of the course of just I don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this is and that's you know both of mine because I've got one other. Um... Yeah, go for, for it. My no, for my later one, I'm going to let you go first. But okay. both of them are decisions by one person completely changing the world. And they're arbitrary yep. decisions, too. They're not, okay, I'm going to scheme. I'm going to. We're not talking Emperor Palpatine levels of influence yeah. here and planning. We're talking, okay, I'm bored with this, or I don't feel like doing X or Y, and so I'm not going to. And then the entire world changes because this one person was lazy one day. And decided yep. to not do their job or to just say, screw it, grab a compass and just draw a line. Um, the net, so the Netflix um, Borgia series shows mm -hmm. this papal bull with Alexander. And literally they have him. He's all frustrated. 
he's being yelled at by the Spanish and Portuguese emissaries, and he's all frustrated. He's like, fine. Takes out the world map, grabs a compass, puts the pointy end on Rome, draws a line, and goes, there. Everything to the west is Spain. Everything to the east is Portugal. Bye. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that's how it actually went down, but mm. that's, that, that's how I picture it in my head. And, it's a nice uh, mental image. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's funny to think about how that one moment of frustration just doing, you know, drawing this line affected the world. <laughs> so what, why don't you, you said you have a few. Why don't you hit me with a couple? Because I've only got one I'll, more. Ra- I'll, I'll rapid fire them for you. Okay. So, and a few of these I can cross off easily. So. Cool. Uh, on D-Day alone, and who knows, it, it's just, it's not a huge thing, but it's it's more the potential that lies there for me. So on D-Day, when we're storming the beaches of Normandy, their like, lead best commander decided to take the day off, not expect. They knew the invasion was coming. They didn't think it was going to be that soon, though. And this guy decides, hey, you know what, I'm not going to be there today. I'm going home and taking the day off for my wife's birthday. So the invasion starts the same day that he's gone with his wife so i don't know really one commander i don't know if maybe he's one of the he was one of their most renowned commanders so maybe he would have made a bigger difference being there but well who knows if one guy could have shifted that we all know that hitler liked to micromanage his armies too true like and speaking at him too he also plays speaking and he plays a big he has he's kind of at fault on normandy that day too because um they have tanks. They have four tanks they want to deploy on the coast to try to save the city. After the beach started to go over, they're like, okay, hey, do we deploy these four tanks? This might help us overrun. And they were like, ah, we should probably get permission from Hitler before we do anything like this. We don't want to, like, redirect these tanks from where else, somewhere else and stuff. Well, they so they, they get a, they're trying to get a hold of, like, Hitler and be like, hey, do we have permission to move these four tanks onto the, onto the beaches? Four or, divisions. Like, to help hold? Yeah. And Hitler was asleep, and nobody wanted to wake up Hitler. And so that actually because go 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 i got one oh no because that though they're like hey we're not waking up hitler we're gonna wait till he wakes up and by the time he's awake it's too late to really ask hey can we move these four tanks because yeah it's it's uh too little too late by that point that reminds me um of the story so stalin one of his orders was to never be woken up in his in his chambers while he's asleep yeah and uh so on the day that he died he didn't wake up you know the, he has guards standing outside of his room stalin doesn't come out so they don't do anything because they don't want to interrupt him because they don't want to get gulag be sleeping yeah <laughs> um <laughs> so they wait they wait they wait finally like 12 hours have passed it's, it's it's evening and one of them gets up the courage they knock on the door they go in stalin is laying on the ground in a puddle of his own urine because he had a stroke barely alive and then died a couple days later stalin literally died because he didn't want people to wake him up that's crazy oh all right what's what's the next one you got um the rest are just like not learning from your mistakes like multiple countries being invaded back to back from the exact same strategy from the exact same country and be like hey france we should have really learned yeah specifically france yeah um but from there, the other one I talk about, uh, the big one too, is the Civil War. How they had such a big chance to end the war early, but all because of a few generals and mistakes. Uh, it doesn't happen. First one, Beauregard. First battle of Bull Run. First major battle of the Civil War. They have a huge numbers advantage. And instead of being like, "Hey, you twenty-five men, you go fight those ten men over there," it's like, "Hey, you three, you go fight those ten. Wait, hey, who, three, who had the number advantage? Those. The North did. Okay. Okay. But this guy, this General Bo- General Beauregard, completely botched that by breaking his men to smaller units to attack these bigger units. And so he, he basically somehow found a way to take his numbers advantage and make it work against them. And so, one, if they could have shut them down early and quick, I don't know. That, that, meant, that might not have been as a lasting of an uh, effect. The big one for me is General McClellan. Uh, and if you, I don't know if you know this, but he gets he gets fired by Abraham Lincoln yep. because he's one of the slowest moving guys in, I don't know, at least in this war. Uh, they win the Battle of Antietam. He refuses to go and chase after. Like Honestly, it seems like he's a general that's terrified of any type of conflict or action, making him a terrible general because he refuses to chase Lee at first. They get away, and Abraham Lincoln's like, dude, you could have totally captured them, ended things a lot sooner if we got Lee out of the way. Nope. 
then they chase him down south, and it's constantly he's moving so slow and at such a slow pace that Robert E. Lee's forces so easily blow up bridges, barric- uh, cut down trees to block paths and stuff. And instead of just trying to find other ways around, McClellan's like, nah, we have to repair this bridge. And it's just, yeah, it, it's just bad. And then lastly, you can also tie that into Pickett's charge. General um, Meade, who, much better than McClellan, chose not to go after. One, saw a lot of death that day, definitely demoralized, but it starts to rain. And Meade's like, nah, we're not going to go chase Robert E. Lee down in the rain right now. Okay, the number of times. <laughs> so, obviously, you, you know a lot more about World War II and Civil War. I know a lot yeah. about, you know, Rome, um, you know, the classical era, and mm-hmm. leading into the uh, the Dark Ages. And the number of times that wars were lost because a general won a battle and went, ah, it's raining, I don't feel like going after the enemy. Huge. is ridiculous yep i mean i can i can think of time i can think of times during the arabian expan uh the arabian expansion or the islamic expansion um fighting against the mongols in russia england that's a, that's a mistake the romans didn't make very often fortunately for them mm-hmm. but yeah just rain rain kills <laughs> kills victory more than anything else Yep. So speaking but. of speaking of, I know we were talking about this a bit before the uh, the podcast started, but I want to bring it up now. So not only every so when it comes to the Battle of Gettysburg, everyone focuses on Pickett's yeah. charge. Obviously, mm-hmm. that was dumb. But yep. the second day of the battle was spent with Lee trying to take Big and Little Round Top because if he could take yeah, the, yep. if, if he could take those, the uh, the Union fish hook would have been flanked. They could get guns up there, completely decimate their positions from above, and the unit Absolutely. would have been forced to retreat. Yep. But no one ever asks, why did the Union... Why was the Union able to take Big and Little Round Top on day one of the battle when day one of the battle was actually won by the Confederates? Yeah. And as we were, we were talking about, Lee turned to one of his generals, I can't remember which one it was, but said, take your troops and secure those hills if practicable. For those, yep. of you, for those of you who don't know, practical, practicable basically means if you think you can do it, if, do, do it. it. <laughs> and the general thought that his troops were tired. They'd been fighting all day. So he went, Where I, no, I'm going to let, I do not think that it's practicable. And so I'm going to let the troops rest. And I think if you, if you wanted to simplify the Civil War as much as humanly possible, that decision right there probably lost them the war. Yeah. And it's just another... You, you could definitely argue that, yeah. Yeah, it's another example of one person making one decision and history has changed. And that that actually makes me wonder all the time. Obviously, I'm not the most... I'm not a general in the middle of a war. I'm not the most influential person in the world. But what, what choices are people... Are our leaders today making that are going to ripple throughout history? And that's something that I always think about because I, you know, am constantly having existential life crises. <laughs> so the last thing that I want to talk about. So obviously, for anyone who follows me on anything not Nightmount Media, my name is X Caesar because I am obsessed with Julius Caesar. So my last, my last situation is all about Julius Caesar. So <laughs> the Romans had a 355-day calendar. So it was the job of the Pontifex Maximus, who was their head religious official, to insert an additional 27, 28-day month every few years to fix the calendar. So fast forward, and this has been going for hundreds of years at this point from the founding of Rome, fast forward to the mid-40s B.C., Julius Caesar has been Pontifex Maximus for 15, 20 years now. But for the last 12 years, he's either been consul as well, so too busy to do his job, or he's been governor of Gaul and Illyria, fighting and conquering in Gaul and invading England, uh, Britain at the time. So he hasn't fixed the calendar for over a decade. So now it's the middle of the Civil War. He's taken, he's secured Italy. He already had Gaul, and he beat Pompey the Great's forces in Spain. 
So Pompey the Great is building an absolutely massive army in Greece. Pompey still controls North Africa and all of the Eastern Republic, which is the richest part of the Republic. So he has tons of money coming in. He's building a massive army. Caesar needs to get his legions over to Greece from Italy as soon as possible. Otherwise, Pompey will just be insurmountable. Plus, he's having trouble actually holding on to his territory because Pompey exists. <laughs> it's a civil war. So he's thinking, okay, how am I going to get over there? He has just enough ships to move his army from Italy to Greece in two, in two goes. He, ha he has just enough ships to move half his army at once. So the issue is that Pompey has one of Caesar's old uh, rivals, Bibulus, leading the fleet, blockading Italy. So Caesar has to figure out how to block break this blockade three times to get his army over there. Uh, one, to get it there the first time, then he has to break it again coming back, and then a third time to get the rest of his army over. He doesn't have enough warships, so the question becomes, how does he do it? And how, how do you think that he got his army over there? I don't know. This is a new one for me. I haven't heard the story. All right. He literally just loaded them up and sailed them over. Absolutely no resistance. The reason being, it's very hard to cross the uh, cross the that part of the ocean in winter. Mm -hmm. mm. Bibulus thought it was January. Caesar, because he was in charge of fixing the calendar, knew that it was October. <laughs> so Bibulus had all of his ships in port for winter, and Caesar just sailed across. Right through. Right, That's ridiculous. Took all the ports, kicked Bibulus's ships out, and then all of, all of Bibulus's sa uh, sailors and marines died on their ships without food. Oh, that's insane. So by not doing his job and fixing the calendar, Caesar managed to cross into, cross into Greece and ended up winning the Civil War, mm -hmm. leading to the Roman Empire and everything that has been influenced by that, which is the entire Western world which is one of my favorite facts. And I have to give a shout out here because as, a, as obsessed with Caesar as I am, I did not know that until I watched Historia Civilis on YouTube. Okay. Fantastic nice. channel. It only puts out like one video a month or so, but they're really, really high quality. And I, I, I had to give him a shout out because that's where I heard that from. I did independent research and it was, it was fantastic. So, any last words before we get ready to sign off here tonight, Brock? No, I've, I could talk. I have so many more examples of both of these tonight. I think about World War II, the Germans and the Russians. Archduke Ferdinand's assassination was a whole mess. Right before oh, yeah. we got on here, we talked about we talked about Genghis Khan and kind of wiping out yeah empires. Uh, no, we could I could talk a lot more on this, but I'm good whenever you are. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> all you have to do is come back on. We'll have Patrick. We'll get some, some more people on here, too, and we can all just Sweet. chat about, about history. So thank you for coming on tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, Thanks for, for having me. This has been fun. Hell yeah. So <laughs> for everyone watching, uh, we do have a couple of announcements to make before we sign off. So first, um, we have a number of new shows to announce. One of which is a five-minute policy breakdown. Patrick and I are going to be taking new policies proposed by local, state, federal, and international officials, um, reading through all the boring paperwork, breaking it down into a five-minute <laughs> snippet, and then giving you the details. Um, another one is just whatever your burning questions are. Um, I'm a CPA, so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be telling everyone uh, what a CPA does. So tune in for that. And something that I'm very excited about, Brock and I are going to be doing a mini-series explaining each and every constitutional amendment, why it exists, and how it's affecting us today. So we've got 27 episodes of that coming. <laughs> and depending on how things are going, the U.S. government might be giving us more episodes. So we'll see. <laughs> and then last but not least... You haven't met her yet, but Patrick's new wife is going... I say new, like he's going to have multiple. His only <laughs> wife is going to be um, starting a show that breaks down 
the same news story from different perspectives. So, nice. you know, take a news story and then what does is, what is Fox News say? What does CNN say? How do they differ? What's the truth? And try to break that down every week. So tune in for those. We're super excited to be able to bring you more content. And if you want to be able to see that, subscribe to us on YouTube. Like our page on Facebook. And if you ever want to come hang out with us, we game all the time on Twitch. So go ahead and give us a follow <laughs> over there as well. Um, this podcast will also be up on iTunes, iHeartRadio, I and Spotify. So we are everywhere. <laughs> Again, thank you for coming on tonight, Brock. Really appreciate it. Thanks. And, it's been fun, man. <laughs> and to all of you out there, you have a good night.